The midterm elections are almost upon us, and political experts are beginning to carefully study the polls that have never been right before, and then discuss them as if they were somehow going to be right this time, for some reason. These intense and serious discussions about what are essentially a random stream of meaningless numbers will help while away the hours until Stacey Abrams is elected queen of her imagination while the rest of us accuse each other of cheating. This will be followed by the majestic spectacle of the peaceful transfer of power, or civil war, whichever makes for better TV. So, let's take a closer look at those polls. As of now, the Real Clear Politics poll average shows Republicans with a 73% chance of winning a majority in the House on Election Day up until about 2 a.m., when officials mysteriously stop counting votes, after which their chances go down to 46%. 57% of registered voters say the most important issue in this election is whether or not they'll be too depressed to get out of bed and vote, while 32% say the most important issue is whether voting will be more interesting than watching TikTok videos one after another, and the remaining 11% say they are unsure whether they'll be depressed or watching TikTok videos or both. 58% of registered voters say they are unhappy with what's currently going on in the country. 31% say they are very happy with what's going on in the country and are also very happy watching the movie Dahmer and slowing it down during the torture scenes. 3% say they're not sure whether they're happy or unhappy, but you can ask again once the Xanax wears off. Some of the differences in poll results are caused by the pollster's varying methods. To give an example, Nate Silver's 538 website uses a unique system in which a computer simulates the election 40,000 times, then selects 100 outcomes until they produce the results Nate Silver wants. So, for instance, the computer might run a scenario in which there's a high turnout of a scientifically selected cross-section of voters, and then Lady Lena Valerian from the Game of Thrones prequel flies her dragon over the crowd and sprays fire on all the Republicans, whereupon Nate Silver dances around his apartment in his underwear, screaming, yay, all the Republicans burned up, until his neighbor bangs on the wall and tells him to keep it down. This results in lopsided victories for Democrat candidates across all the seven kingdoms of Westeros, as well as a stern warning from Silver's landlord, after which Silver will be interviewed on NBC News to fill time while they're not reporting on the soaring crime rates in Democrat cities. The Trafalgar Group uses a more hands-on method by actually visiting people's homes and polling anyone who doesn't shoot at them under the impression they're an FBI SWAT team coming to arrest them for being pro-life. Their latest poll shows that 65% of young people are very optimistic and believe that Jamie Lee Curtis really will kill Michael Myers for good this time, hopefully before Putin starts a nuclear war. 73% of Democrats who read the New York Times feel the most important issue is whether Donald Trump will climb to the top of the Empire State Building, clutching a woman in one giant paw while swiping at World War I biplanes with the other. Unless that was just a dream they had, in which case the most important issue is whether there'll be any bagels left at Zabar's if they stop off for their yoga lesson first. As for Republicans, 88% believe you ought to get the hell off their property before they pepper your ass with buckshot, you federally fascists. The conservative-leaning Rasmussen poll uses a system in which pollsters sit in a room smoking dope <laughs> throwing darts at a picture of Woodrow Wilson with a target drawn on it and then record the numbers or some numbers, in a spreadsheet which they then delete before writing down completely different numbers they just made up and publishing those online. This has resulted in polls approximately 95% more accurate than all the other polls put together because they count a more realistic number of Republican voters. 
After carefully sifting the data, most pollsters report that they're making a pretty good living, but are plagued by a sense of meaninglessness and a nagging fear that their mother was right and they should have done something more useful with their life, like joining the circus or trying to become the ping-pong champion of Romania. 92% of respondents agree the pollsters never could have become the ping-pong champion of Romania, but it still would have been more useful than what they're doing now. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. All right, we are back laughing our way through the end of days. I almost made it through that introduction, and now we're going to talk about how the left's ideology has edged out, at first edged out the fact-based journalism, but now it's edging out fact-based science. Uh, Henry Olson will come and tell us what exactly is going to happen uh, in the midterm, since Henry is always right. And uh, we've got a really interesting culture uh, segment, which is going to sum up some of the stuff we've been talking about uh, over the last couple of weeks, put it all together, and show you how to fight back, or at least start to fight back. Uh, I don't know if you were watching Good Morning America the other day, but Charlie Gibson and his daughter, I think Kate is her name, uh, interviewed the great Otto Penzl, uh, probably the greatest mystery editor in the world, and I'm serious about that, but he also happens to be my uh, editor, and Nelson DeMille was also there, and they talked about the greatest mysteries of all time. They talked about The Woman in White, which is a spectacular, spectacular book, uh, The Daughter of Time. These are great classics. And then there is this one from Otto Penzler's Cut Four. It's a book called When Christmas Comes, and it's set in an idyllic town where people don't lock their doors, and a brutal crime occurs, and the murderer has confessed, and his lawyer calls a friend and says, I want you to get him off. So that's Otto. Now, Otto is my editor, and he is my friend, but he's also an incredibly honest person. I happen to know this is his favorite uh, mystery. My book, When Christmas Comes, is his favorite mystery of the last five to ten years. Of course, it is about to be followed by a sequel, A Strange Habit of Mind, and please pre-order. Order them both. Order them both, and you will be happy that you did. Uh, also, subscribe to the Andrew Claven YouTube channel where you will get exclusive content if you ring that little bell. It will be ringing in your ears uh, that will go on for the next 30, 40 years. Uh, and also, we'll put up some videos as well. And also, if you leave a comment and that comment is salacious, uh, bigoted, uh, low, and just ugly, we will include it on the show as fitting in right with the rest of our content. Uh, Michael McKay says, my four-year-old son giggled. During your intro, Clavin, goes to show the quality of your program. Even if adults don't understand it, the kids will at least be entertained. This is true. Actually, four-year-olds are my target audience. Uh, that's why I keep talking about uh, politics. So I'm leaving the studio after the show, and I'm going to Italy. I come back from Italy. I go to Nashville. I come back from Nashville. I go to New York. I am traveling a lot. And when you're traveling, you know you want to be able to rest easy, and you can rest easy with a Ring alarm. That's Ring, the video doorbell company, lets you talk to anyone who comes to your door no matter where you are, but now they've got an award-winning home security system with available professional monitoring when you subscribe. It is easy to install, I've done it, it doesn't take long at all, and they are changing the home security game with Ring Alarm Pro. Ring Alarm Pro is a whole home security system with available professional monitoring when you subscribe to Ring Protect Pro. Ring Alarm Pro combines a security system with a fast Wi-Fi router for home security and network security, 
in one device. With a Ring Protect Pro subscription, you get the ultimate peace of mind because if anything happens, professional monitoring will call you and can request emergency services. So whether you're across the country, across town, in another country, you want to rest easy, know that everything at home is protected and connected with Ring Alarm Pro. Go pro with Ring Alarm Pro and you can learn more at ring.com forward slash Clavin. That's ring.com forward slash Clavin. How do you spell Clavin, you ask? It is K-L-A-V-A-N. If no one, if someone comes to your door and they don't know that, set off the alarm. Also, if they do know it, set off the alarm. All right. Uh, there is a wonderful passage in the Bible, just a beautiful, beautiful passage from the book of Isaiah, where the prophet is upbraiding Israel, the northern kingdom, uh, because of the leader's drunkenness and corruption. And he says they think they're going to avoid God's judgment. And this is what he says, famous passage, just beautifully written. Uh, Hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men who rule this people who are in Jerusalem, because you have said we have made a covenant with death and with hell we are in agreement. When the overflowing scourge passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood we have hidden ourselves. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, the hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and the waters will overflow the hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled and your agreement with hell will not stand. When the overflowing scourge passes through, then you will be trampled down by it. So they thought that they could lie their way out of uh, retribution, even from God. Uh, And what's interesting to me is the connection between lies and death. Uh, Isaiah says you are hiding in lies and that is a covenant with death. Uh, and, and you might think, well, what has one got to do with another? But the answer is actually pretty clear. Not only will the truth set you free, not only can you not be moral unless you look at life honestly and know the facts, but in the end, lies will take not just your morality and your freedom, but even your life, because in the end, all lies are one lie, and that one lie leads directly away from life to death. There's an amazing video, in in keeping with this, this is relevant to what I'm talking about, uh, from the University of Minnesota Medical School, where medical students are being forced to take an oath in which they promise to honor, they're going to fight white supremacy by honoring primitive healing methods, even though, of course, primitive healing methods don't work at all. Here's a cut. This is cut five. We recognize inequities built by past and present traumas rooted in white supremacy, colonialism, the gender binary, ableism, and all forms of oppression. As we enter this profession with opportunity for growth, we commit to promoting a culture of anti-racism, listening and amplifying voices for positive change. We pledge to honor all indigenous ways of healing, that have been historically marginalized by Western medicine. <laughs> so they're going to go back to indigenous ways of healing when children died, about 50% of all children died. So that's going to be a really good thing. So you want to think about that, uh, look at your doctor's degree and make sure he doesn't come from the University of Minnesota. They, to be fair to them, they did adapt their graduation ceremony uh, to this new uh, attitude. And here's a, just, we got a video of the graduation ceremony too. Here it is, cut six. It's not about the numbers, what you feel is real. Crystals raise the light, the taste of orange peel. Open the mind, change the mind, it's how we achieve. Can't hurt to try, right? It's what I believe. Witch doctor. Witch doctor. Witch doctor. Witch doctor. That's the graduation program at the University of Minnesota Medical School, where they're training doctors to follow their ideology instead of the science. Uh, 
Uh, and so your life might be forfeit to their ideology uh, because they have made a covenant with death. And this brings me back to the Bible. You know, I always like it when people interpret stories. Interpreting stories is very important. It's very meaningful. Finding different meanings and new meanings in stories helps you to read more deeply. Uh, so, I, you know, critics can be really important people, and I'm not making fun of that at all. But the important thing is that the story comes first. It's just like the difference between life and philosophy. You have to live before you can philosophize about life, and then you have to change your philosophy as life teaches you new things. Life is the ruler. Everything serves life in the same way when you read a story. The story is the point, not the interpretations. So the fall of man in Genesis, the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis, uh, has been interpreted a thousand different ways. I mean, some people think it's the beginning of repression of sexuality or the birth of self-consciousness or the development of man's large brain. That's why the woman gives birth in pain because the baby's head is so big. Uh, some people say it's a discourse on the relationship between men and women. And all of those things are interesting ways to think about the story. But when you go back to the story, the story remains powerful and engrossing and convincing in many, many ways. Uh, even then, Adam, as you know, eat the uh, forbidden fruit, which is the knowledge of good and evil. And God casts them out of paradise for the following reasons. He says to the angels, uh, behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, we've got to kick him out of paradise. Now, I used to think that that meant God was protecting his own power. He didn't want to be replaced by human beings. It was almost like a saying, oh, no, we can't let him get that powerful because then he will take over our job. <laughs> I think what he's really saying is they have become like one of us who are not one of us. They've taken on a job they can't do, which is the job of the great lie, which is that men, humans, can be the judge, the ultimate judge of good and evil without reference to that supernatural level of meaning in which good and evil have their existence and do not change because we say they do. Uh, because when you take that level out, that spiritual level out, then the category of morality becomes empty except for what man puts into it. It's just whether we say, whether we say it's good or evil. It is not whether it is actually good or evil. But the problem is, once you eliminate that spiritual level, man is also empty. You're just flesh with desires. That's all you are. You're just flesh and blood with chemicals uh, inside because there's no spiritual level to you either. So emptiness is passing judgment on emptiness. Uh, matter is judging matter. Desire is guiding everything instead of that other desire, which we'll talk about during the culture segment, that desire to be uh, in connection with the spirit uh, that is above you. Uh, all of this obviously leads to the primacy of desire, the slavery to addiction, the slavery to pleasure. Uh, it, it ends obviously with the end of fact and science and reality, because all those things are based on a meaning beyond man's comprehension, and ultimately it leads to death. Why? Because all you are is meat and chemicals, and you have no way to do anything to those meat and chemicals because nothing has any reality. Nothing has any facts beyond itself. All lies are that lie. All lies are one lie, and that lie is a covenant with death, and that's what we're going to be looking at today. I know you're reading the financial news. You got to be prepared. When the bottom falls out of the stock market, it is nice to have something tangible to hold on to, an asset that mankind has valued since at least biblical times. I'm talking about gold and silver. You can own physical gold and silver at bullionmax.com slash Clavin. These guys are the true precious metals professionals. They'll ship gold and silver coins and bars in any denomination directly to your door, fully insured. Inflation is out of control. The government is addicted to spending. The markets don't know how to respond. 
Invest in a little security for your family. Check out bullionmax.com slash Clavin. We want to make it really easy for you, so we came up with a silver starter bundle for Patriots. Get five one-ounce solid silver coins, including an American Eagle, a Buffalo coin, even a Donald Trump silver round. Bullionmax.com slash Clavin to get your starter pack and have real silver or gold shipped directly to your door. Start building a secure future today at bullionmax.com slash Clavin. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, but how do I spell Clavin? I need to know how to spell it. It's K-L-A-V-A-N. No E's in Clavin. I just make it look this easy. There are no E's in Clavin. So, you know, the funny thing about lies and the funny thing about moral lies is that people know that they're telling them. You can look in people's eyes, I mean, and, and see when someone is uh, making excuses or rationalizations for something they did that they know is wrong. I mean, I'm sure you've lived through this. It's not something, uh, you know, you don't have to be a scientist or a student of human existence. Uh, I'm sure your closest relatives, yourself, you've done it. Uh, you know when you're saying something that is wrong. And so people begin to understand that they have made a covenant with slavery and with death uh, because obviously uh, you cannot support uh, freedom with lies. You can't support anything with lies. Ultimately, it collapses into its own uh, incoherence. And so that's where you start to lose your freedom because the lies always serve the powerful. The lies always serve the pr- people with power. And the people with power don't want to lose their power, so they have to enforce the lies, and that is where uh, your freedom starts to disappear. Uh, In California, Gavin Newsom, the governor and uh, funny-haired diner out uh, with his friends, uh, recently signed California Assembly Bill 2098, which says this, it shall constitute unprofessional conduct for a physician and surgeon to disseminate misinformation or disinformation related to COVID-19, including false or misleading information regarding the nature and risks of the virus, its prevention and treatment, and the development, safety, and effectiveness of COVID-19 vaccines. So now, now the science has become so meaningless compared to the ideology that the politician decides whether or not the doctor or the surgeon should say what he believes is the truth, right? Because Gavin Newsom's medical knowledge which is, I want my power, please give me my power, don't take away my power, that's his medical knowledge, is going to dominate the medical knowledge of a guy who went to medical school, which, which is fine if he went to the University of Minnesota because then he's wearing a witch doctor mask and he doesn't know what he's talking about. But if he went to a real medical school where they actually practice Western medicine, he is now, uh, you know, um, he is now committing unprofessional conduct for giving his medical opinion if it contradicts Gavin Newsom's. Uh, that is just absolutely wonderful. But but we can't turn to the doctors either because the doctors uh, also want to enforce their ideas, which are also completely ideologically based. Uh, this is from um, well well first of all the you know the funny thing is is the vaccine we now know that the vaccine stuff that we were told by the politicians was all untrue. I mean this is an amazing thing during a hearing uh, on the European Union's COVID nineteen response. Pfizer's president of international developed markets, Pfizer, obviously one of the main vaccines, Janine Small, admitted that its vaccine had never been tested before its release to the general public on its ability to prevent the transmission of COVID when asked by a Dutch politician and a current member of the European Parliament, uh, Robert Rob Roos. This is what she said. She said, we had to really move at the speed of science to really understand what is taking place in the market. And from that point of view, we had to do everything at risk. She said, I think Dr. Borla, even though he's not here, would turn around and say to you himself, if not us, then who? The speed of science 
is slow. That's the whole point of the speed of science. You gotta test things. You have theories, the theories don't work out. You have ideas, you put the test out and the tests have to be replicated. The speed of science is slow. So what she meant, we had to move at the speed of politics. And so now, remember, the, poli- the politicians in California are going to determine what the doctors can say. They're going to determine what the doctors can say. But the politicians have already been shown to lie. Here's a Hannity montage showing what the politicians said about the vaccine, which was never tested to show if it would prevent transmission. They're, you're OK. You're not going to get COVID if you have these vaccinations. Vaccines prevent getting infected, prevent getting sick, prevent your hospitalization. Our data from the CDC today suggests, um, you know, that that vaccinated people do not carry the virus, don't get sick, um, and and that it's not just in the clinical trials, but it's also in real-world data. Now we know that the vaccines work well enough that the virus stops with every vaccinated person. A vaccinated person gets exposed to the virus. The virus does not infect them. The virus cannot then use that person to go anywhere else. (laughs) So in California, politicians and ideologues can now enforce what doctors say about the vaccines, even though we know they lied, even though we knew they were not telling the truth. And, and, but it goes beyond this because the doctors themselves are now so drunk on the, this essential lie, the essential lie that there is no reality, really, that there is no spiritual reality, there is no such thing as truth. They're so drunk on this that even they want their false opinions and ideologically based non-medical opinions uh, enforced by the law. They themselves want this. This is a Chris Rufo uh, get. He says uh, he found a letter the American Medical Association, the MA, huge uh, medical group, Children's Hospital Association, CHA, and American Academy of Pediatrics uh, sent a letter to Attorney General Merrick Garland, the corrupt Attorney General, asking the department to take swift action to investigate and prosecute individuals responsible for what they alleged are increasing threats of violence against hospitals and ph- physicians targeted for providing evidence-based gender-affirming care. There is no such thing as evidence-based gender-affirming care. First of all, gender-affirming care is a propaganda word. It is not a description of anything because you can't change your gender. It is just a theory that grows out of deconstructionism. And I'll try and talk about that a little bit more if I have time. Uh, Sexually mutilating children, if they or their parents or some doctors are sexually confused and want to justify that confusion by cutting into the bodies of children, the, the FBI now has to investigate if you say, you know, I don't think that's a good idea and I don't think your facts support it. I want to see your science, because I I can tell you there is no science saying that this is a good thing. There couldn't possibly be. There hasn't been time to do a longitudinal study. Uh, There hasn't been any evidence that people's genders can be changed. There hasn't been any evidence that your feelings about your genders have any relation to the facts. It makes me laugh because the corruption runs so deep and corruption makes me laugh because it's so degrading to the human person. Uh, So the FBI, which has already been sent out to intimidate parents who are trying to protect uh, their children from these sickos in the schools and from people trying to uh, force, you know, Uh, their sexuality on these little children who have no way of knowing any better. Uh, They've already raided, the FBI has already raided the homes 
like like with SWAT-like teams and arrested at least a dozen peaceful pro-life protesters while arresting zero of the people who have attacked crisis pregnancy centers. Uh, And remember, three-fourths of women in crisis, something like three-fourths of women with a crisis pregnancy would prefer an alternative to abortion. So the vandals who are destroying and threatening the lives of people who run those uh, crisis pregnancy centers, they haven't been arrested at all. But if you are pro-life and you uh, got in an argument with somebody, the FBI will descend on your home and carry you away in handcuffs because nonsense has to be enforced because people are capable of making sense and they know when they're lying, they know when they're rationalizing, they know when they're doing the wrong thing. People will be haunted all their lives by a wrong thing that they did if they do not admit it and turn to God for forgiveness. This happens all the time to all of us. All of us have these things that haunt us in the middle of the night. Some stupid thing you said when you were 15 years old and now you're 50 and you will wake up in the middle of the night sweating thinking, why did I do that thing? We all know, we all know it, but what they're trying to tell you is, no, it, that, that's a mistake. What I'm going to enforce, a false sense of things uh, to make sure you do the wrong thing, to make sure uh, you follow me because that's where my power uh, emanates from because I've made a covenant with death and I think I'm living in a shelter of lies. So the thing is, the things the left is saying about sexuality, about the body, about physicality are nuts, especially when you put them together, when you put all the different things they say together. As long as you're listening to one person, you might sort of nod along and think, well, that sort of makes sense. But when you put everything they say together, it makes no sense. So they say, oh, well, there are no differences between men and women. You know, that's a social construct. You know, men and women are a social construct, but the differences between them are so identifiable that you should butcher your body if you have a feeling that you identify with being a woman. (laughs) That's what they're actually telling you. That's their philosophy. You know, you talk about uh, Matt Walsh and his great work that he's doing. He's having riots at his speeches, uh, and he made that wonderful film, What is a Woman? Uh, But the whole transgender movement is based on the idea that there's no such thing as a woman, that 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 word is essentially meaningless and contains a construct created to keep women subjugated. This is Judith Butler. She wrote this book, Gender Trouble, uh, which is a very uh, central book in this whole gender confusion thing. And her whole argument is that there is no such thing as a woman, that this I, this word is a uh, uh, basically based on a legal concept. It has nothing to do with your internal life because she doesn't believe really that people have uh, an internal life that is related to reality. She believes their internal life is, is basically kind of a random construct. Uh, and it's all a construct of people because all lies are... All of these lies are that one lie. So now you get these people who start to say things that make absolutely no sense with all the other things that they believe, and it's hard not to notice it. Uh, here is a doctor of psychology from Boston Children's Hospital, and now the FBI will have to investigate me because I'm sure they'll think this is a terrible thing I'm doing. Uh, this is a doctor of psychology. This is the hospital associated with Harvard University. It's Harvard's teaching hospital. Her name is Carrie McGregor. She's a doctor of psychology, and she's talking about uh, you know gender confusion and uh, what they call transgenderism. Cut 10. So most of the patients that we have in the GEMS clinic actually know their gender, usually around the age of puberty, but a good portion of children do know as early as seemingly from the womb, and they will usually express their gender identity as very young children, some as soon as they can talk. They might say phrases such as, I'm a girl, or I'm a boy, or I'm going to be a woman, or I'm going to be a mom. Kids know very, very early. That's the Renfield laugh, which you should hear every time these people open their mouth. Because think of what she just said. Even from the womb, these these sophisticated people in the womb know that what their gender is, you know, but you can kill them because they're just a clump of cells. But they're a clump of cells that knows 
what their gender is. They're sitting around thinking, you know, uh, yeah, I'm a, you know, I'm a clump of, I'm just a clump of cells, but I think I'm a clump of cells. It's a man instead of a girl, even though when I look down, my clump of cells actually has a vagina instead of a penis. So when can you kill them? When can you kill these clumps of cells that know this about themselves, that have a fully formed sense of their own gender? When can you kill them? Well, let's not go you know, we can't go to doctors, right? So we have to go to politicians because politicians now are saying that we have to check with them before we spread any kind of medical disinformation unless it happens to be from indigenous people and we're wearing a witch doctor mask. Uh, so let's let's talk, I, I just said random, well, I'll take the woman who's running for governor of Arizona, Katie Hobbs, for the Democrats, cut nine. So if an Arizona voter were to conclude from your previous answer that you do not favor any specific weak limit on abortion, would they be correct? I support leaving the decision between a woman and her doctor and leaving politicians entirely out of it. So, in other words, she believes in infanticide. They're all of them, all of the Democrats. None of the Democrats will answer the question, what's the weak when this little clump of cells who knows what his or her gender is, uh, you know, but is so sophisticated that has a complete sense of what sex he is, uh, you know, whether no matter what his body is telling, he's just a clump of cells, but he is that sophisticated. What weak? Can you stop killing them? No weak. There is no weak. If the doctor says, hey, you kill him when he's 15, go ahead. But if it's misinformation about COVID, then the politicians take over because you wouldn't want a doctor talking about COVID unless he's wearing a witch doctor mask and dancing around and boiling bats in a vat or something like that. You know, you you ask why I make heroes out of moms because we know, you know, they're bad moms, they're good moms, moms, there are moms who are bad people, moms who are good people. Why do I make heroes out of moms, at-home moms? homemaking mom. You know, there's a piece in the Wall Street Journal this morning. It came out so late that I really couldn't include in the show. Maybe I'll talk about it next week. But it quotes studies showing how traditional gender roles improve marriage and sex lives and just about everything in your life. Uh, but, But I support moms because people go where their interests lie, right? If your interest lies in power, then it doesn't lie in truth. If your interest lies in materialism, then it doesn't lie in spiritual truth. But moms, their interests lie in the human and they lie in the family. And the human and the family are the basis of all our freedoms and all our lives and all our humanity. That is why moms are the factory of humanity, not just physically, but also uh, spiritually. It is in their relationship with their mother that people become people. That's why, you know, why do you think these leftists wanted moms out of the house? Why do you think they were saying, oh, she's just a mom. She's just a mom. This is, here's a woman who is an actual uh, insurance salesman, but she's just a mom. Here's a woman who is a real estate, but this is just a mom. Why do you think they did that? They wanted you out because if what you are supporting, which is the humanity of your children, the safety of your children, the health of your children, you are supporting something that's going to take their power away. Now, I said the FBI is intimidating them, but in fact, it's pretty hard to intimidate a mom when you're going after their children. I, these are getting to be like pornography to me. I mean, I, you know, I find I find at-home moms sexy to begin with, but when they start and go fight for their kids at these school board meetings, I, it's getting to be like porn. I'm watching these things all the time. And here's just one from San Francisco as an example. Uh, this is the Encinita Union School District Board. Uh, surrounded by moms and some dads, the board sent out an invitation to a, quote, family-friendly drag show sponsored by a gender reassignment surgery center. So it's based on confusing children about their gender so you can get the surgery, they can get the money, uh, you know, and that's, and that's a, it's a perfect system. <laughs> so a woman shows up and says, 
just because you put gen, family friendly in front of it, what makes it family friendly is cut 13. What is it about a grown man costumed in a sparkly bra with augmented boobs busting out a leather miniskirt barely covering his twerking ass with tuck tape on his front while spreading his fish netted legs as he writhes on the ground grinding his groin next to a minor mm, family friendly you owe us an answer no. and you know you don't get to hide by just taking something down off peach tree and calling it a day you owe an explanation right. and an apology yeah. to Love those moms. I really, if anybody is going to save this country, it is going to be the moms because that's where their interests lie. It lies in humanity and family, and humanity and family is where it all begins. All the things we have, all the things we love, all the things that make us who we are, it all starts there. The lies, the lies have to go after the moms, have to go after the families, have to go after our freedoms, our morality, and ultimately they will go after our lives, as I'll show you in just a minute. Now, many people watch my show and they say, wow, Clavin, what a mess. What the heck happened? <laughs> it's because we didn't hire our staff using ZipRecruiter.com. Hiring is challenging, especially now when business owners have so much on their plate. Luckily, there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart, a place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. You guessed it, ZipRecruiter.com slash Clavin. ZipRecruiter does the work for you. ZipRecruiter uses its powerful technology to find and match the right candidates up with your job. You can easily review these recommended candidates and invite your top choices to apply. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employees who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. That's why ZipRecruiter is the number one rated hiring site based on G2 satisfaction ratings as of January 1st, 2022. Right now, to try ZipRecruiter for free, my listeners can go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Clavin. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Clavin. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire if and only if you are smart enough to know how to spell Clavin. It is K-L-A-V-A-N. Just a remarkable uh, piece of journalism, or as the left calls it, disinformation, from a lady named Rupa Subramanya, who has written for the Wall Street Journal and here is writing for a substack called Common Sense. Uh, this is an amazing story. She, she says, on September 7th, Margaret Marcilla called Joshua Tepper, the doctor who planned to kill her son. Marcilla is 46 and she lives outside Toronto with her husband and daughter, a nursing student. She had known that her 23-year-old son, Keanu, was depressed. He was diabetic. He'd lost his vision in one eye. He didn't have a job or a girlfriend or much of a future. Marcilla asked her daughter to log on to Keanu's account. Uh, he never shared anything with his mother. What he was thinking, where he was going, and Marcella was scared. That was when Marcella learned that Keanu had applied and in late July been approved for a medical assistance in dying, which is called MAID, aka assisted suicide. And his death was already scheduled for September 22nd. And the emails that go between uh, Keanu and these people who are going to kill him uh, are just amazing. They tell him how he can bring his dog along. Dogs are welcome in the space as long as there is someone who will be responsible for them during the time at Madehouse. In other words, you're going to be dead, so somebody's got to take your dog. That's uh, just incredibly gruesome, but all with that smile on their face. You saw it before when I played the lady from Boston College, that same old crazy fascist smile. It's just the same thing. This is kind of the same tone. So why is this happening? She goes on. 
Let me give you her name again because she really does a great job. And Rupa Subramanya in Common Sense. Uh, in 2015, Canada's Supreme Court ruled that assisted suicide was constitutional. In June 2016, Parliament passed Bill C-14, otherwise known as the Medical Assistant Dying Act, made, uh, it's now the law of the land, anyone who could show that their death was, quote, reasonably foreseeable, was eligible. In this respect, Canada was hardly alone. The Netherlands, Switzerland, Belgium, Spain, Australia, and New Zealand, among others, also allowed assisted suicide. So do 10 states in the U.S. Now, as you know, I'm a little soft on this when I have seen doctors uh, basically kill patients in hospitals when everything else had failed, when they had thrown in heroic efforts and the last thing had gone, uh, the last chance they had is gone. They start to tell you things like, uh, yeah, we're going to increase the dose of morphine every hour, you know, to keep him comfortable. That's what, they, you know, essentially they're putting him out of his misery and they're killing him. But that's after they have tried everything. And some things need to be done in the shadows because once you make it a right, uh, it becomes a really, really dangerous thing. And once you uh, say, yes, anybody can do this and it becomes a legal matter, it just expands uh, exponentially. So in 2017, she goes on, the first full year in which made, uh, which is administered by provincial governments, was an operation. 2,838 people opted for assisted suicide, according to a government report. That's 2017. By 2021, that figure had jumped to 10,064, accounting for more than 3% of all deaths in Canada that year. 3% of people in Canada who died, 3% of the deaths were people being killed in, in assisted suicide. Today, thousands of people who could live for many years are applying successfully to kill themselves. Because remember, it started out your death had to be foreseeable, instantly foreseeable, which meant you were fatally ill and you didn't want to go through all the medical things. And of course, you had to deal with the wonderful free healthcare and you didn't want to deal with that because that's awful. So, you know, you thought, like, I'm just going to leave the scene. I understand. But why, she says, why was there this dramatic increase? She says, over the past few years, doctors have taken an increasingly liberal view when it comes to defining reasonably foreseeable death. And again, once you say this is okay, pardon me, once you say this is okay, it's going to expand. That is just the nature of it. Last year, the government amended the original legislation stating that one could apply for MAID even if one's death were not reasonably foreseeable. The second track of applicants simply had to show that they had a condition that was intolerable to them and could not be relieved under conditions that they consider acceptable. It's a quote from the law. This included applicants like Keanu. So listen to that again. Those are quotes from the law. If they had a condition that was, quote, intolerable to them, unquote, and could not be quote, be relieved under conditions that they considered acceptable. Think about that for a minute. What could that be? I mean, that could be anything. That could be sadness. That could be depression. That could be my girlfriend left me. I find that intolerable. My girlfriend left me and nothing you say, nothing you do is going to alleviate that sorrow. Uh, it could be just life. Just life living under the shadow of mortality. It just all, you know, life is tragic. Life is, life is hard. It could be anything, anything. So instead of saying, oh, life is a value, life is a good thing, uh, that should be fought for, that should be uh, striven for, striven to pre uh, preserve it. 
life itself has become empty of meaning to these people in Canada. And I think that is going right back to what we were saying before. Just, I just want to repeat this. I want to repeat this idea that all lies are one lies. All lies are the lies that we are in control of meaning, that we are in control of moral meaning, that we are in control of the usefulness of things, that we, that, that we having eaten the, the, the apple of the knowledge of good and evil, are like unto God's instead of being like unto gods who are not gods. In other words, was having the power to do this, but not the ability to do it correctly. So once you do that, once you say that, here, here's an action. The action is I'm torturing a child. It's supernatural meaning, meaning something that is above nature, is that's evil. Even if everybody on earth believes that torturing a child is a great thing, it remains evil. It doesn't matter what people say, it remains evil. That is a supernatural thing in that it is above nature. But once you say, no, that doesn't exist, that doesn't exist, now it just becomes a matter of power, a matter of pleasure, a matter of convenience. This is what the Marquis de Sade, from whom we get the term sadism, this is what he said. If nature doesn't care, why should we care? If nature kills at will, why shouldn't we participate in nature? We are, after all, natural beings. There is no God. We are natural beings, so let us enjoy ourselves by killing other people and torturing them and sexually raping them and, and doing all the terrible things that... Uh, constitutes sadism. Why not? And indeed, he's correct. I've always said, Desaad is the only atheist I've ever read who makes perfect sense. Uh, you know, that that it does make sense. The only problem is he just happens to be wrong in his premise. Once you get the premise wrong, every all the other wrongness follows. So this is this story of Keanu as it goes on. His mother manages to delay his death, but he's unhappy about it. He's an unhappy guy. He wants to die. Uh, and she is saying, no, I'm your mother and your life means something. And I am going to stop that from happening happening. That's the battle that we are engaged in, the battle between those who believe in humanity, who believes that human life is a gift and has to be preserved if you can preserve it, the idea that there is something beyond ourselves that we have no control over, that we have to accept as moral, even if we can talk ourselves out of it, all of those people, and it does so often begin with your mom, uh, as we all know. I mean, all of us know things that our mom said to us that we have to listen to even as we get older. Uh, you know, it so often does. But all of that stuff is what we are trying to defend because it is the basis of humanity, which is the basis of family, which is the basis of government, which is the basis of freedom. And once you say that we are in control of that, once you participate in the fall of humanity, instead of uh, exempting yourself, exiting uh, that fall, that original sin by seeking the forgiveness of God. Once you do that, you just join the crowd. You know, you just join that crowd, that march into oblivion and the uh, dominance, the primacy of desire, the prim primacy of flesh, and ultimately the primacy of death. That lie, that lie is a covenant with death. It is in agreement with hell and it will not protect you in the end. There are only two certainties in life, death and taxes. The IRS makes sure you're up to date on taxes, especially with the 87,000 agents they're planning to hire. But what about death? I don't like to tell you this, but you're going to die someday. I hope it's a long time from now. But in the event you die tomorrow, what sort of legacy are you going to leave behind? Who's going to raise your kids with your values? Who's going to stand up for them and not let them get indoctrinated by a severely flawed society rife with leftist ideologies? Who's going to take care of your parent or grandparent? 
A will lets you decide what legacy you leave behind. It lets you tell the state, this is how it's going to be, not the other way around. You can set up a will a lot quicker than it takes you to do your taxes. Go to epicwill.com and use promo code CLAVEN to save 10% on Epic Will's complete will package. For just $119, you get it all. Last will and testament, living will, healthcare, power of attorney, and financial power of attorney. And you can set it up in as little as five minutes. Get it done today. Go to epicwill.com and use promo code CLAVEN. If you're one of those people who's going to die, you need to know how to spell CLAVEN so you can go to Epic Will. It is K-L-A-V-A-N. No ease. There are no All right. We're talking about the midterms coming up. There is no better mind to talk about these things with than Henry Olson. He's an elections analyst with a long record of excellent election predictions because he follows the numbers no matter what. He doesn't let his own opinions get in the way. Uh, And he writes a regular column from a conservative point of view for the Washington Post, which tells you that he is also a man of courage and endurance. Uh, It's it's great to see how you're doing. I'm doing great. How about you, Drew? I'm good. So let, let's start before we talk about what's going to happen uh, or what you th- predict with the midterms. Polls have really taken it uh, in the neck for the last many years. That basically, people at this point feel the polls are completely ridiculous, and yet you use the polls a lot to to think your way through these things. Do you find them to be reliable, or is are they reliable if you do a certain thing, or how how do you work with the polls? Yeah, well, you know, I think uh, they are reliable-ish, which (laughs) is to say that you rely on averages rather than individual polls. You look at what's behind the polls, that if you're an unsophisticated consumer of the polls, which is, say, virtually everyone who comments on them on uh, major television stations, uh, you're going to give a misleading picture. Uh, But you have to understand a couple things that first of all, people aren't responding to the polls in the same way. So you have to look at them and say, does this make sense in light of what I know about the demographics of the sector being sampled, whether it's a state or a district? And secondly, you have to look and say, how does this compare to what I see happening nationally? And if you do that, you use them not as a inerrant lodestar, but as uh, some evidence that can help you form opinions, they're actually still quite useful, but they're not as accurate and as helpful as they were 12 years ago. Interesting. All right. So let's talk about, I mean, I saw that uh, 538 is giving a, uh, is leaning toward the uh, Democrats in the Senate, toward the Republicans in the House. Uh, Trafalgar today put out a poll giving uh, the saying the Democrats are stronger, but you just wrote a column saying you think that the Republicans are getting stronger. Let's start with the House. What are you seeing now? Yeah, the biggest thing about the House to understand is where the parties are playing in the battlefield, is that when you look at the polls, they say that uh, it's roughly tied in the national generic ballot on average, that both RCP, Real Clear Politics, and 538 have it within a point. But that's not what the party's behavior is telling us. What the party's behavior is telling us is that they see a lot of vulnerability in seats that Joe Biden won by as many as 14 points. Mm -hmm. And they don't see a whole lot of vulnerability in seats that Trump won that are held by Republicans. That's not consistent with a national polling average of it's roughly tied. That's consistent with parties seeing vulnerability in a potential R plus five or R plus six, uh, to use the polling language, meaning that they see the possibility that Republicans would win 
the national ballot by five or six because it you're not going to get seats that win that you're not going to get seats that Biden won by 10, 11, 12 points to shift on average unless Republicans win the national ballot by that much. So what the parties are telling us in the House is that the situation is leaning away from the Democrats by a larger margin than what the national polls are telling us, and that the potential exposure over time, over the next four weeks, is sharply in the Republicans' favor rather than in the Democrats' favor. And when you when you translate that, because you're talking about a national average, when you translate that to individual races, does that are you confirmed in that feeling? Yeah, well, that's what I, that's roughly what I'm doing is I'm imputing an usually what you'll do is you'll translate a national average to individual races. So Biden won by four and a half points. So if it's in 2020 and the Democrats won the national vote by a little uh, somewhere over three points uh, in 2020. So if it's a national average of zero, that's a shift of three, four points away from the Democrats. So you'd expect the competition zone to be somewhere in that area where anything that Trump won by a point or so, the Democrats could win if they have a strong candidate, anything that Biden won by a couple of points, the Republicans can win. You would not expect to see people think that seats that Biden won by 10 points would be competitive because 10 minus four, you know, the point shift is six. You know, you'd say, okay, well, maybe he'll win by six or eight points. You know, that's not where you throw $4 million of money Mm -hmm. is to try and drive that. But in fact, what you're seeing now, particularly this week, is both sides putting million-dollar-plus investment in seats that Biden won by 10 to 14 points. That's consistent with the environment that we saw in Virginia in 2021, where there was a pretty uniform shift of 12 points away from Biden's 2020. And what that would do is suggest a national environment that is very strong for Republicans if that uh, continues to happen. So what I'm doing is looking at where are they putting money, subtracting Biden's and saying, okay, this implies a national margin of this. And what it implies uh, that the median seat that they're contesting is one that Biden won by seven points. So that suggests Republicans are actually leading the national ballot by two and a half points, because otherwise the party's investments make no sense. I get it. I get it. Even even an English major could understand that. I appreciate it. Um, now, how does that translate? Well, into- I'm not sure I spoke English, but maybe it translate. I got it, actually. Now, what about when you turn this over to the Senate races? I know the, um, the Democrats are less exposed in the Senate, uh, and that's always been a, a harder hill to climb. What is it looking like now? Yeah, you know, fundamentally, the question is, do you think that Senate races are going to turn more on national trends or more on individual characteristics? Democrats made the argument in 2014 that they were going to do very well in Senate races because they had all these strong incumbents and that Senate races turn on individual characteristics. Hello, they lost big. They lost (laughs) nine Senate seats or something. And the reason why is that wasn't true, or at least it wasn't true enough. And it's even gotten worse in the last few years is that I took a look in uh, every Senate race from 2014 to date and saw how many points ahead of the president's job approval rating the candidate of that uh, party ran. Uh, you know, Democrats tend to do a little bit better than you would expect from the job approval rating. But there's only two candidates of either party that ran 10 points or more ahead of their expected share of the vote based on presidential job approval. Joe Manchin and Susan Collins, who mm-hmm. happened to be two of the longest serving senators in small states with consistent, moderate, bipartisan records. Um, Mark Kelly, who's been in the Senate less than two years, doesn't qualify. 
Catherine Cortez Masto, who's been in the Senate less than six years and been a loyal Democratic vote, doesn't qualify. So what that means is history tells us they won't run more than four points ahead of Joe Biden's job approval. And uh, what that suggests, again, is that these Senate races are going to turn more on national figures and less on individual situations than the Democrats are telling us. Take a look at the Senate polls. Democrats tend to be leading, but they're all stuck in the 44 to 47% range. What that means is that pretty much, and that's, again, consistent with what you see in the job approval ratings, that they're running a few points ahead of Biden, but they can't run the 10 points ahead of Biden they need to win outright. So that means there's a lot of voters undecided who are leaning against the Democrats this time. And what do you think they're going to do in the last month? History tells us that they'll break late to the anti-party that's not in power. And last time I checked, despite what the January 6th committee is trying to tell us, the actual president of the United States is named Joe Biden. Not Donald Trump. <laughs> so you think there's a, still a possibility the Republicans could take the Senate? I mean, to... I think it's a probability. You think it's a probability? Wow. Okay. That, I mean, that, yeah. we're four weeks out. I'm, my final prediction uh, will be made in the pages of the Washington Post right okay. before election. And I reserve the right to change my opinion based as numbers and data change. Yeah. Uh, but uh, right now, I'd say that there uh, is a probability that the uh, Republicans will control the Senate and uh, not a big control, you know, one or two seats. But that there's a, if you forced me to bet right now, I would say uh, the Republicans will gain one or two. And if you take a look at the website predictit.com, which is where people put their money where their mouth is, they actually have the Senate as a 50-50 toss-up, as opposed to what you're seeing on the poll aggregating sites, which suggests the Democrats have it. So again, again, where political pros go to make money from other political pros suggests a 50-50 race for the Senate. Um, and I think that in three weeks' time, they'll be where I am right now. Ha, huh, wow. Uh, you know, the, a lot of the, one of the big narratives that went around this, this season was the Candidates that Trump had picked were so offbeat and so wild and so Trumpian and extreme uh, that they were, that Trump had just ruined everything. He just completely destroyed the Republicans' chances. And then, you know, some of these debates that went on, uh, J.D. Vance against Tim Ryan in Ohio and uh, Oz against Fetterman, I thought Trump's candidates actually did great. I thought they just ripped the other guy to shreds, actually. Was that whole narrative just uh, nonsense? I mean, it, it, do, you, do you think that there's any truth to that? Yeah, I would say it's neither nonsense nor um, uh, gospel truth. Uh, you know, I, I've been a fan of J.D. Vance for years. I've known him for years, um, wrote columns supporting his candidacy before he was an apple in Donald Trump's eye. Um, but So it doesn't surprise me that J.D. would run rings around uh, Tim Ryan in a debate. Uh, but the fact is they did take it extreme positions. And they did associate themselves with somebody who remains very unpopular with the, you know, the, the, the median voter in this country is an independent who is roughly moderate on issues who dislikes both Donald Trump and Joe Biden. So what that did is give them room for pause, you know, which is what do I care more about, uh, as opposed to a generic R candidate who wouldn't trigger those things. Doesn't mean it's going to be dispositive. You know, it's quite clear that all of these candidates that are being touted as weak are running behind where they should be running behind as a generic Republican. It's clear that the Democrats are gaining something from it. You know, most Senate candidates only run in the recent era about two points ahead of where their job approvals, the presidential job approvals would predict. 
candidates running against Trump's people are running four or five or six points ahead. But Biden is so unpopular, that's probably still not enough. So mm. that's why I'm saying there's truth to it, and it's not gospel truth. Got it. That's really interesting. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the issues. The New York Times wrote a hilarious piece in which they said, you know, the GOP keeps trying to change the subject from abortion, you know, to things like crime that people really, what, what are the things that people care about right now? Yeah, I mean, you could have just stopped the New York Times writes a hilarious piece. <laughs> yeah, that's, that is it. But, but know, still, look, let's, 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 yeah. As Paul Harvey used to say in our youth, let's talk about the rest of the story. The rest of the story is the Democrats, led by the New York Times, have tried to make the story all about abortion for four months. The polls have consistently shown, and I'm not talking about Republican polls, I'm talking about polls, even polls that show the Democrats ahead in the generic ballot, show that independents do not rank abortion highly when they're asked what is the issue that they care most about. They care about, wait for it, inflation in the economy. So this is not Republicans trying to shift the narrative away from something that the people are already thinking about. This is a failed effort by the New York Times and its media mini-me's to shift the narrative to something they cared about. They did not succeed. <laughs> so we're, we only got about two minutes left. Uh, the the thing that really strikes me is the, the some of the stuff that's happening with the transgender issue, uh, with the issue of, of putting pornographic picture books in schools, these moms showing up at these meetings, clearly with their hair on fire. You know, is, is that having an effect, do you think? I, I, to me, I look at that and I can't believe it's actually happening. I can't believe that people are not, you know, storming uh, the, the schools at a much higher rate, uh, storming some of these hospitals that are butchering children. Uh, do you think that's having an effect on the polls or is it just outside of most people's? Uh, you know, you know I yeah. think, right, I think this is one of those issues that, like a tsunami, is building power under the water. Uh, as opposed to one that's going to crash ashore in three and a half weeks' time, that uh, people are seeing this more and more. This attracts revulsion across the vast majority of people in this country, but it is not yet at a level where somebody has nationalized it. Republicans are not nationalizing this in their advertising. They are not emphasizing this as an element of partisan difference. And because it's local, it's hard to say, well, this is the fault of Congressman or Congresswoman X. Um, but I don't think you can find any of these places that are putting these things in schools where the elements in charge are Republicans. I think it could very easily become a defining issue over time as the abuses and excesses are uncovered more. And then you have a question of, Will Democrats cut that element of their party loose? Well, we've seen over the last two years, Democrats will cut no element of their party loose. They will position themselves so that they look to be un, un, looked down on an element of their party, but they will never just say, you do not speak for the Democratic Party. You want to say defund the police, you do not speak for the Democratic Party. You want to abolish ICE, you do not speak for the Democratic Party. Because there's a minority but significant element for within the Democratic Party that does want those things. It's like when in the, George McGovern was attacked in 1972 as the candidate of acid amnesty abortion and the Rolling Stone columnist Hunter S. Thompson saw this ad and was asked what he thought. And he said, it's great, except I'm for acid amnesty abortion. <laughs> 
you know, yeah. when a third of your party is for these things, it's hard to move against them. And so this gives the Republicans the opening if they're wise enough to figure out how to uh, exploit it, but not this year. Got it. Okay. Well, Henry Olson, always incredible clarity. Uh, he writes for the Washington Post. If you can stand the rest of the Washington Post, his columns are always informative and incisive. It's great talking to you, Henry. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. You know, chain stores have different price tiers for professional mechanics and do-it-yourselfers. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, who cares? How do I get a date? The answer is the same. It's you got to say rockauto.com. At rockauto.com, the prices are the same for everybody. And when you say it like that, rockauto.com, women go nuts. They just go insane. Not only because you said rockauto.com. That would drive any woman insane. But because they know that you are smart enough to go online to get your parts for cars and trucks, whatever you need, and you can get it from their easy-to-use catalog at prices that are low and the same for everybody. Plus, plus, you said rockauto.com, and women love that. Prices at rockauto.com, they're always reliably low, amazing selection, reliably low prices, and all the parts your car will ever need right there in that easy-to-use catalog at rockauto.com. So go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck. Rockauto.com. Be sure to write Clavin in their How Did You Hear About Us box so they know I sent you and make sure to say it in that same voice. It's the voice that matters. K-L-A-V-A-N. So a few weeks ago on the show, I read you an email we were copied on from a Harry's Razors customer who was canceling his subscription to Harry's and switching to Jeremy's. He was so ticked off with Harry's virtue signaling nonsense that he was willing to pay the extra money to have his Jeremy's kit shipped to the UK where he lives. Since then, we've been copied on a flood of breakup emails from our listeners, all telling Harry's and Gillette what they can do with their woke razors. Here's one now. Hello, I've been using Harry's for many years and have enjoyed your product. However, when you choose to inject yourself into political matters and say that 50% of the country are bigots, you make it very a very easy decision for me to cancel. Why should half the country have to tolerate open discrimination simply for having a different opinion? The answer is that we shouldn't, and thanks to The Daily Wire, we no longer have to. I'll be giving my money to someone who will use it for something I support, not a company that openly despises me. P.S. I am a bald man and shave my head three times per week, so you genuinely are missing out on a good deal of money from me. You tell him. This man's follicle fallout is Harry's financial loss, but they have no one to blame but themselves. Actions have consequences. And we will gladly take the lead in holding woke companies like Harry's, Gillette, Disney, and all the rest to account. Someone has to do it. And right now, when you go to jeremysrazors.com, you can not only help us, you can get 40% off your founder's kit. So head to jeremysrazors.com and start shaving woke-free. And don't forget to copy us on your breakup email using reviews at jeremysrazors.com. So in the cultural segment today, I want to pull a lot of this stuff I've been talking about, not just today, but the last couple of weeks together. And I want to start with this very disturbing video uh, from the Allendale United Methodist Church in St. Petersburg, Florida. The senior pastor, Andy Oliver, uh, welcomed a drag queen, Isaac Simmons, who dresses up as a woman and calls himself uh, Ms. Pentecost, I guess, so you understand his connection to the demonic <laughs> Pennywise and Stephen King's It. Uh, here is a portion of this video where this pastor, Andy Oliver, uh, introduces Miss Pentecost to these children. Do you have any questions for Miss Pentecost? I like her eyeshadow. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, you like her eyeshadow. That's great. Yeah. 
Yeah, maybe she'll let you borrow it when you're older, when you're allowed to wear makeup. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) of course. Yeah. Well, one of the things I think is great about Miss Pentecost is she reminds us that we, we follow a God who calls us to not conform to things of this world. Uh, that we're supposed to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And that means that what I think today may have to change tomorrow if I continue to renew my mind. And it's so cool that we serve a God that calls us to continue to grow and continue to, to change into something new. Huh. Interesting. We follow a God. It's that God with the horns and the spiked tail, but never mind. Never mind that part. But let me tell you, it's a lot of these things uh, bother A lot of things bother me about this, obviously. It's a horrific video, I think. Uh, but but let's get, it's it's not the fact that these introducing to these drag queens. I mean, Jesus did say if anyone causes uh, any of these little ones to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. So that's going to be disturbing, but that's their problem. Uh, but Pentecost, this, this, uh, this uh, transvestite, is the first openly gay candidate to be certified for ministry in the Illinois Great Rivers Conference, which is a regional body of 800 churches in the southern two-thirds of the state of Illinois. So here's a, he's, he's going to be, he's up to being, up for being a pastor, right? He's the first openly gay candidate to be certified for ministry. Here's a poem he wrote, Isaac Simmons wrote, uh, AKA Pentecost, Miss Pentecost. Here's a, a poem that he wrote about the Bible, a little bit of it, this cut 16. Look, the Bible, the Bible is nothing. Nothing but poetry, pain, and performance. The Bible is no more holy than Allen Ginsberg's Howls of Life, no more peaceful than Oscar Wilde's Requiescat and Pache, and no more stronger than Tammy Faye's damn eyelash glue. God himself is no more tangible than the concophony of invisible butterflies floating in new lovers' stomachs yearning to be set free from the bondage of past harm and the lacks of rightful mistrust. God himself is nothing. (laughs) So the Methodists want a pastor of God who is going to teach that God is nothing. But more important than that God (coughs) is nothing, as that God is no more real than the flutterings of butterflies fluttering in the hearts of, of young lovers. In other words, your desire is everything. It's everything. There is no, uh, uh, there's nothing else. That's it. It's your desire. This is what I'm ta- talking about, is he's going to be a pastor of the lie, right? Uh, this is called, by the way, you know, a lot of this gender stuff grows out of what was called a French, a French philosophy of post-structuralism, uh, deconstructionism, where they deconstructed things. But uh, it, it's really idolatry. Yeah, this is off topic a little bit, but just very quickly, uh, you know, people see things and experience things over the long history of time, and they invent words to communicate them to one another and to express them to one, and to express their feelings about them to one another. And so words have a history and they develop over time. And yes, they come along with some prejudices, which maybe we clean out of them, and their words evolve and they change their meanings. But they create a structure of understanding that we is the human understanding through the centuries. Uh, and what the deconstructionists do is they deconstruct that structure of words and think that they have deconstructed reality. 
Remember, the words are just a way of describing reality, and they have their flaws, and they have to change over time. But what the, what the deconstructionists think, it's idolatry. They mistake the symbol, which is the word, the symbol of reality, for the reality. And they think by deconstructing the words, by making what is a woman mean nothing, uh, they have now dis- deconstructed the lives, the actual lives and experiences of being a woman because they really don't believe that that inner experience is connected to anything real, that your subjective experience is actually a reflection of a spiritual experience. They don't believe that. It's just a thing that was created and can be torn apart. But that's because there are idolaters who believe in the word rather than in uh, the spirit. Now, I, I want to link this to Candace's new film, The Greatest Lie Ever Sold, which she had a premiere and Kanye West was there. I couldn't go because I'm flying around. I'm leaving this studio and flying off to Italy for a, a conference there. And then I have to fly around some more. So I just thought this one more flight. But I watched it at home and pretended Kanye, I pretended Kanye was with me. Uh, and, and Candace uh, tracks down um, what happened to all the tens of millions of dollars that were given to Black Lives Matter uh, off the death of violent drug addict George Floyd in police custody. And this is just a little bit of, of what Candace found. Let's cut one. Black Lives Matter designated a whopping $8 million to an out-of-country grant. What? I thought this charity was about addressing police brutality in the United States. Apparently, to do that, you need to send $8 million to Toronto, Canada to an organization named M4BJ. And I should also mention that M4BJ is run by Patrice's wife, Janaya Khan, because it is. She is the co-founder, believe it or not. And here's where it gets really interesting. Janaya Khan is gender non-conforming. Now that information would be entirely irrelevant if it wasn't for the way that Patrice Cullors saw it fit to spend the rest of Black Lives Matter's money. Ready for some BLM pride? Well, according to their IRS form, $200,000 went to the Transgender Justice Funding Project. Another $200,000 went to the Transgender United Fund. Another $200,000 went to the Transgender Law Center. So now, so you see that this Black Lives Matter, which is supposed to theoretically help black people in America when all their tragic uh, experience, which some of it actually is tragic, instead it's, it's paying for this transgender stuff, which is, reflects the lives of the uh, Maoist, uh, the ma- trained Marxists, as they call themselves, who run Black Lives Matter, who are lesbians, one of whom is uh, transgender. So how, why does all this come together like this? Because all lies are one lies. What is going on? You know, why and how do we begin to respond to this big lie? So two weeks ago, we were discussing how this is a difficult political period of transition because all these epochs are ending at once. Post-World War II period, the Reagan era, the baby boom generation, and the and a new era, the internet era, is, is beginning to be born. And so there's all these moments of uh, when, like almost like a, um, a middle age uh, crisis. Can I throw out this part of my life, do something totally new? Can we do something totally new and change everything? It's given rise to a struggle, a couple of struggles. One is the struggle between the concept of the nation state, where the individual and the family and the state and then the federal state and then the world uh, under a a God, under the guidance of God, uh, basically care for the freedom of peoples and families, of individuals and families. That's on one side. And then you have the other side, which is the concept of global governance run by what our guest Emily Finley called democratism, in which the language of democracy is used to describe rule by unelected experts and elites who decide in their wisdom what the popular will would be 
if the people weren't deplorable, okay? So that's essentially what happens. Is Steven Pinker, he says, and he supports this, that people don't need to be free. They just need to feel that they're free. They need to feel that they have a choice of what's going on. Now, at the same time, right, there's also this battle uh, on the home front between our basic standards and values, uh, which are, are always going to fall apart and become uncertain in these moments of great change, right? Uh, so that leaves room for activists who say they represent those who feel excluded from those values, unfairly excluded from those values. And at first they say, please include us in this wonderful society your values built. And then they say, now we're in the house. We're going to redo the whole house. We're going to destroy all those values. And we're going to say, no, those values were wrong because they excluded us and were hurt. Reality has done them wrong, right? I mean, they feel to some degree that they're excluded from even uh, the simple thing of the normal life of man and woman creating children and families. And so they're going to change that. They're going to say that's not a value. And since there are no real values, there's only the values inside yourself, we can do that. Now, if you think about it, you can see where the interests of the globalist elite and the interests of the activists have a place in common, in the Venn diagram in common. And as we know, Kamala Harris loves Venn diagrams, so she'll love this. The globalists can support the activists in dismantling the power centers of nationalism, which are local culture, religion, and family, which means the globalists can then take power and replace that power, that individual family and church and locality power, with global power, the power of the experts and the elite, right? And they can do it while wrapped in a rainbow flag because the rainbow people are destroying those uh, bastions of local power. So you see their interests coincide. And this is why corporations support the activists, why corporations wave the rainbow flag, because globalism opens, opens markets everywhere, and it keeps those pesky localists from saying, you know, there is some values that are more important than pure profit making, right? You know, mom says it's not all about money, not everything is money. And the Global corporations are saying, no, wait, no, every, no everything is money. Don't say that, mom. So, you, mom, you got to get out of the way. So we're not teaching your children that. This is why Georgia Maloney was saying they want you to be perfect consumers and they're going to take away, uh, this is the new upcoming prime minister of Italy, they're going to take away your family, your identity, uh, your gender identity, your national identity, your religious identity, or just replace it with consumerism. And they, she's right about that. But it's all of these, uh, of all of these interests are coinciding in this moment, right? Which is which is why you're going to find that mom is the center of the fight back. But they're all coinciding. And what the globalists say to the activists is, yes, you know, you, we're going to give you equality. We're going to give you equality. But what they don't tell them is that, is that it's an equality of misery. As a trans person, now you can cut your testicles off and then stand in line with all the other miserable people waiting to get a gallon of gas for your moped because you're not allowed to own a car, right? So that's going to be great for you. But you're, you've already helped them destroy the bastions of power that would have kept them from destroying the world that you live in. So it's a power struggle wrapped in a battle of ideas disguised as a struggle for individual identity. And on the other side, you know, on the one side of the people who love the individual, believe in the family, and the other side of the people who love mankind, but they hate the people because the people are deplorable. And they keep telling you, by the way, we just, we just want full power just for a, a little while, just for a little while, and then there will be no power structures anymore. The state takes all the power, but then, <laughs> hooray, miraculously, there won't be any power structures anymore. It just takes 10, 20,000 years, and then we'll let go of our power, and you can have it all back, and you'll be free. 
Now, obviously, those of us who believe in God, family, and country have been slow to organize, right? Because we depended on the big institutions to help us, and now those institutions have been corrupted uh, by, we can identify them as the left, but it's really more than that. It's this globalist uh, coalition of globalists and activists destroying local power. We want to fight back by being who we are, right? We don't, it's not about the blacks or the gays or, the, or even the transgender people. It's not about any of that. It's about the activists and the globalists acting together. So if we sit around and hate the, the Jews or the blacks or anybody else, we don't need to do that. We don't need to do that. We simply need to construct new institutions from the ground up. And that's a hard task, but it's not an impossible task. They took the institutions away. We can build them back. We built them the first time. We can build them back. And I think I've said this before. It starts with the family. But I think you also have to have the church, right? And the churches, when the churches are bringing these guys who don't believe in God and to become pastors, we can say the church is not the church. The church is done. The church is gone. Uh, it, it's, it's gone. It's not, you know, there's no point and purpose in complaining about it. It's like Hollywood. You're not going to convince them. You have to start it again. And I want to talk a little bit about what that means, what, why we should turn back to churches. Remember, Jesus said, if even two or more of, of you are gathered in my mind, in, in my name, I will be there. So we can start churches with very little. We can start it with families. We can start, you know, two families in a Bible are going to start a church for you. And that's all it's really going to take. Or you can find a church that is still a splinter, like I did. I found a, a splinter of a splinter uh, church where they're still preaching the gospel. And so, you know, what, what is the point? What is the purpose? What do we believe that they don't believe? They believe that this identity is just the butterflies fluttering in your, you know, your uh, chest. Uh, we believe that there's a connection between us and the spiritual, supernatural level of life. And Jesus said, I'm the true vine. If you want to bear fruit, and he says, I'm the true vine. My father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of me that bears no fruit. He says, remain in me as I remain in you because no branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. And you can picture that image in your head. If you cut a branch off a tree, it's no longer going to bear fruit if you put it on the tree. The tree is that spiritual being, that spiritual presence of Christ that links us to the supernatural meaning of the world. That's what you're trying to do. You're trying to become that person you know you're supposed to be, but can't be. And is that person the butterflies fluttering in your, you know, in your desirous uh, heart? No, it's not. It is, in fact, an emptying out of that person, an emptying out of those, you know, cacophonous calls for ego and money and, and desire and letting the spirit flow into you. That's the point of being attached to the vine is the vine, the blood of the vine blow, flows into you and you become, you know, it's like St. Paul said, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And that's what you're trying to get to. Now, why do I believe so much in ritual? Why do I believe that ritual is is the important thing. Here, here's why. Because all of us, all of our lives are, are passages to God. The, the left and all these people are telling you that it's just your desire. It's who you want to sleep with. It's what you want to do. It's even the right does this. They say, oh, you know, you, you can, your pursuit of happiness is building a business, making a fortune. You came here with nothing. The immigrants came here with nothing, but now they're rich. I'm telling you, all of that stuff is good or bad as it may happen. But, but, the, your point of your life is becoming that person you know you're supposed to be by emptying out all the accidents of your life and letting something flow into you that is the spirit. Now, why why does ritual help you do that? Why you know this is where I think the Catholics are better uh, than the Protestants is they still believe in the ritual, and I believe very much in the bread and wine. Knowles believes I've I've never prayed the rosary, but Knowles swears by it, and I'm not not opposed to it. I, I will definitely try it. But I think that these rituals are incredibly important. Why? Because 
things that happen to your life get between you and God, right? Your mom and dad are supposed to represent God to you. They're supposed to be a passage for you from matter into the spirit. They're supposed to be the male and female image of God. But we know our parents, uh, you know, they, they fail us a lot of times. They abuse us. Our father abuses us. Our mother leaves. You know, they, they get divorced. Things fall apart. And now, in your heart, that thing that you were saying, oh, because you're just a kid, right? You think, oh, this is my passage to that thing that I am supposed to be. And now it's fallen apart. It blocks your uh, it blocks your path to God. So now when you pray to God, you see the abusive father. Now when you pray to God, you see the abandoning mother. What, what symbols do, what ritual does, is it depersonalizes that passage. It says, I know, I know. Life went wrong. Life went wrong. Your father was abusive, but God's not abusive. Your mother abandoned you, but God will not abandon you. Come to the bread and wine. It has nothing. It has nothing. It's just bread and wine. It has bread and wine, but we will transform it through ritual, through prayer, through understanding, through concentration. We will transform that into the body and blood, and soon you will begin to construct a world in which all of these material things will lead you back to God. And that's, that is the living life, the living life, the true life, the, the end of the covenant with death is understanding that it's not you. It is you are just the branch on a vine. And that vine, when you let that vine flow into you, you will find. And, and by the way, it's instantaneous. It's not, I mean, it's, it's, it happens slowly. It happens inch by inch. It happens every day. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to say, oh, yes, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. You don't have to do any of that stuff. You just have to show up, do the rituals, say the prayers, read the book. That's all you have to do. And day by day, you will find that you change. It will change you. You will start to shed the personal things that have uh, derailed you and have derailed that passage. They are going to be preaching this. They're going to be preaching it from the centers of power. You are going to be preaching it from that weak, crushable thing that is your individual family, your individual church, your individual town, and you are going to win. And that's how it's going to work. It is. It's true. I know. It is absolutely impossible. It is David versus Goliath. Just remember what happened to him. You are going to win, but it's got to start with you. It's got to be in your life. It has got to be in your life. Don't sit around screaming at the TV. Don't sit around pointing your finger at the TV. Begin with your life, your spouse, your family, your church, your town. You will conquer the world. All right, the end of time is coming, or as we call it, the Clavenless Week, but we will be doing a member's block if you're a subscriber. Uh, so you should be a subscriber. We'll be doing a member's block on all the stories that I'm not covering and why I'm not covering them. But first, we have the mailbag. Oh, it's okay. I'm transgender. Oh, I, I had no idea. Do whatever you want all the time. Yeah! <laughs> I don't know what that was. That was pretty funny. All right, from Cody. Uh, my wife and I have been trying to have kids for about 18 months with no luck. We got married young and are still in our mid-20s. We have been married for about five years. My wife has always loved kids and is one of them since the day we got married. Uh, I delayed trying until about two years ago, uh, but we we've, haven't been successful. Now sex seems like a chore, and she is doubting we will ever have a baby. It has caused a large point of tension in our marriage. Uh, she seems to go into deep despair. I tell her every time that it's all in God's timing. We can't force God. Uh, she has always been a faithful Christian, but now seems like she's losing her faith. I'm concerned about her. I don't know how to help her. Sometimes I have to convince her to go to church, which is out of character. Any advice to help her hold her faith and have hope that we will one day have a baby of our own? Adoption is on the table, but not something we want to do yet. Uh, thank you for any of your insight you can give. Okay, I can give you insight on this. Uh, two things. Um, first of all, go to a doctor and not and your OB 
OBGYN, go to a baby doctor, a fertility doctor. Uh, God does not hate doctors. God likes doctors. Doctors uh, do the work that God himself did when he was on earth. Uh, go to a fertility doctor. There are options and things that you can do that have nothing to do with, I, I understand that some of these options in, include creating embryo, embryos that'll be destroyed. You don't want to do that. That That is fine, but there are all kinds of things you can find out. You are very young. If you've been going for 18 months, you know, usually I tell people after a year, you should go to a doctor. And if you're in your mid-20s, you should go to a doctor. Find out. Find out. It will put your mind at rest. Uh, if there's something terribly wrong that can't be fixed, at least you'll know, you know, and you won't be sitting around and do, doing this. Do not sit around waiting for uh, God. God. That is God acting. You're, you going to a doctor. That's the first thing. Second thing, stop trying to cheer your wife up, you know participate in what she is trying to do. This is of urgent importance to her, and I, I'm sure it's of, of importance to you too, but telling her to, to calm down and uh, you know trust in God is not, that's not what she's waiting to hear. What she's waiting to hear is you too are eager to have this child, and you too are worried and, uh, and you know, um, and anxious about what is happening, and you two are clinging to your faith and believing in your faith, uh, but but you understand her anxiety because you're feeling it yourself because you are in line with this project. This is something you are doing together. You are one flesh, and you are doing this together to make a, a baby together. So just, I'm not telling her, I'm not saying you... Uh, you should encourage her to feel bad. I'm simply saying that you should share with her uh, your own feelings with this and stop trying to, you know, stop saying essentially, uh, you know, cheer up. I mean, which is like trusting God is essentially saying cheer up. No, she's not going to cheer up. This is very important to her and it's not happening and she, she needs to know more. Go to a doctor. And again, you may have moral choices to make. You make those choices. That's fine. Trust yourself to make those choices correctly. But it may not even involve that. It may be much simpler. Uh, I have known many, many cases where people... Um, where people have gone to the doctor and gotten help from fertility doctors without any kind of moral uh, problems at all. Also, you might want to stop start the adoption process if you're really committed to that. Uh, you know, it takes an incredible long time, incredibly long time to get it going. Uh, why not get it going now? You can always stop it later on if you get pregnant. Um, you know, that's that's up up to you. But still, I think that uh, you know, there's no reason not to start the process. You can always change your mind. Um, from Ben, hello, hot Gandalf. I want to thank you for taking my question. Uh, I will keep this very short. So as you may know, there's a controversy in the church community about Harry Potter and the witchcraft in it. What are your thoughts on that issue? Is Harry Potter good? Is it bad? I don't have a huge opinion on this very much, but someone I know was saying that they thought that Harry Potter is the most Christian fiction book out there, and I just don't agree with that. Thoughts? Thank you very much. Yeah, I, I my own uh, feeling about this is that... Um, is that I think Harry Potter books are pretty good. I, I'm not a big fan of children's literature, uh, so I read a couple of them, but I thought they were talented and, and uh, well-imagined. Um, it doesn't matter to me whether there is a witch in Harry Potter because there are no witches. Harry Potter is a story. It's a fiction. And so the witches mean something. They, they represent like evil. And I think it is a book. I don't know if it's the most Christian book, but I think it's a book about good and evil. It's a book about sacrifice uh, and, and redemption and coming um, and, and resurrection. Uh, so I, you know, it is, it is a book that has Christian values in it. I don't know what JK Rowling's, you know, thoughts are or her religion is, but it is a book that has Christian values in it and good values. And I think fiction is fiction. You know, I remember when I I was working uh, for a Christian, uh, for Thomas Nelson. I was writing books for them. One of the editors said to me that after Twilight about a girl who loves a vampire, Christians wanted to write books about a girl who loves an angel. Uh, and they didn't want to do that because angels don't uh, have 
desires like that. Uh, and I thought, well, I don't know. There's that book, there's that movie, The Bishop's Wife, that is full of Christian feeling about an angel who sort of has a yearning uh, for a human being. It's, it's fiction. It's a story that you're telling that illustrates something about human life. And I, I you know, to say that to say that the things that, that are happening in fiction aren't true, that's what fiction is, you know? Um, so I feel higher, the Harry Potter books are perfectly moral and fine. Uh, from Robert, I know you believe in ghosts, but I'm wondering if you believe in demons. Part of me does from a Christian standpoint, but I admit I have a hard time wrapping my head around the meaning of angels and demons and how they manifest. What are your thoughts? First of all, it's not true to say that I believe in ghosts. I don't not believe in ghosts, okay? You know, I, I, I just don't know about it, uh, but I have no actual thoughts about it whatsoever, whether I have no certainty about whatsoever. Uh, demons, hard for me too, but here's what I think. I do think that there are forces in the world that are conscious uh, for good and evil. And I think that they appear to us, that we receive them as demons and angels. I think these are real things. Obviously, they're not big characters with fluff, feathery wings or guys with uh, you know horns or anything. Those are just representations of something that is really happening because there is something beyond this human life uh, that obviously affects us and changes people in very strange uh, ways. One more um, I, from Michael. I need you to weigh into a debate that is happening among other Daily Wire show mailbags. Is candy corn good? Matt Walsh says it is absolutely disgusting. One of the most disappointing candies. Michael Knowles, on the other hand, the pumpkin spice latte guy of the crew. Really likes candy corn. What say you, sir? Walsh is wrong. I'm sorry. Uh, love the guy. He's a wonderful fellow. And you know, Knowles, you know, needs to be, I think, executed in some way. Uh, not physically, but, you know, I'm just uh, morally, we need to destroy him. Uh, but he's absolutely right. Candy corn is great. I love candy corn. And it's one of the key reasons uh, to go trick or treating. Uh, but not for me. I just go out and buy it because I just think it's fantastic. All right. <laughs> <laughs> is this what the other guys are arguing about? We're sitting here talking to you about reality and life and morality, death and morality, you know, and God and all this. They're talking about candy corn. Ah, gosh. And, that, and now I have to tell you to subscribe. <laughs> subscribe. <laughs> all right. Well, subscribe so you can listen to me. Uh, so you can listen to the members block, which is coming up for the rest of you. You are plunged into the week of darkness, the Clavenless week. You will be crawling through fire, screaming broken glass, uh, wailing, gnashing of teeth, but we will be back next Friday. And now, for those of you who are wise enough to subscribe to the Candy Corn channel, uh, it's time for the members block.